This is Multinew Media. Hi, everyone. I'm Chase Raz, and this is Multinew Media. With me today is Alan Kelly, and this is going to be wonderful for all of us. Alan is a London-based former programmer and current Agile thought leader. His company, Software Strategy Limited, provides Agile training, consulting, and resources. Alan, hi. How are you? Hi, Chase. I'm doing well. I, I really want to just thank you for coming on the show. Um, I, I, I would admit that you and I have not met in the real world yet. Uh, you are uh, in London, as I said, correct? Yeah, I, I am indeed. The wonders of technology. We can speak and record this wherever we are. <laughs> and that's wonderful. So I haven't met you and you haven't met me in the real world, but I have been, I haven't been stalking you now, but I've been following you <laughs> on a couple of different podcasts and on websites and conferences. And I'd love to talk about some of those things today, but it seems like you've been, um, you've been quite out there recently. I, I, I have. Um, it's, I, you know, podcasts seem to be it for me this year. I think this is the, the third or the fourth podcast I've recorded in the last few months, uh, which is funny because the last few years I've been going to a lot of conferences mm. and I deliberately decided to cut down on conferences. So I've cut down on conferences and I'm doing more podcasts. Uh, so go figure. Yeah. Well, speaking of the conferences, I was looking through your Twitter feed and your uh, Alan Kelly Net on Twitter, right? That's your handle yeah, on Twitter. Me, yeah, yeah. And I see that you were just at the Agile on the Beach conference. And not only that, you're a keynote presenter and an organizer of the event. So I think this is a great place to begin. What's the idea behind <laughs> mixing an Agile conference with a beach party? <laughs> so... Uh... Well, you you got to do something different, haven't you? Sure. Um, so uh, I don't. Know, I know you're you're in Florida, Chase. And mm-hmm. um, the closest thing we have in the UK to Florida is part of the country called Cornwall. And for listeners who don't know British geography, it's the, the sticky bit that sticks out into the Atlantic. Um, and uh, no, it doesn't get as warm as Florida, but. Most English people consider it like the holiday region. Mm, so and, it's a place uh, I should definitely visit first when I when I come yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only trouble is it takes about uh, four or five hours on the train to get there. Uh-huh. And um, the other thing with that region is that um, because it's very traditionally tourist and farming based um, and the industry declined years ago, it's, it's also a deprived region. Oh. And a few years ago, in fact, still today, the, the government and the European Union put money in there to try and help local businesses. And um, a few years ago, I was part of a program that was working down there to help the local software businesses get agile. Because um, some of the people down there realized we've got tech companies, and if we can bring them up to the best in, in the world, this gives me opportunity. And uh, the conference kind of grew out of that is kind of the, the local businesses said, you know what, we are a long way from where the action is. We are a long way from London. And it's difficult to send people to London and elsewhere for conferences. Um, why don't we have a conference? So they decided um, to have their own conference. And because I was the agile coach on the ground, I got roped in. And although I don't live down there, all the other organizers do, We've just had our seventh year, and every year it's grown and it's got better. And we've had some fantastic keynotes over the years. And you know what? It's still supporting the local industry. It's still supporting the local software companies. There's one company down there. It's owned by a mate of mine called Toby. When I first met him and his company, they employed five people. They got agile. And because they got agile, they got better. And because they got better and they're doing agile, they got some ins with some serious clients. Um, Toby now employs 100 people. When I first met these guys, one of their questions to me is, should we be using um, Git? And today they're giving presentations at conferences about continuous delivery and cutting edge stuff. And it's because they, they've really upped their game technologically-wise and process-wise that they, they can take on, you know, um, you know top-flight companies as clients. And they're now employing, you know, 100 people, which is great for the local economy. And I think people are going to love hearing you talk about continuous delivery and agile. But I do want to put a personal question in first. And um, your website, alankelly.net. Uh, talks about you and, and and it says that folks know you as um, Agile Allen. 
How did you, how what what path did you follow? Uh, we'll talk about agile in a moment, but what path yeah. did you follow to become associated with agile? And what's your story that brought you to this way of thinking? Yeah, yeah. So um, if you wind the clock back um, to what was it, ninety five, ninety six, I did a death marks project here in the UK. I was working six days a week. Uh, on the seventh day, I was on call. Uh, an utter disaster. Uh, the one saving grace of the project was it was in central London and there were some good bookshops. And one day I went and I picked up a book by um, Jim McCarthy called Dynamics of Software Development. I'm sure some of your older readers will have come across it, but mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those books that's kind of disappeared off, off the radar. And it wasn't Agile. Agile hadn't been invented, but Jim was talking about some ideas which today we'd recognize as Agile. And for someone working on a death marks project, this was like, oh, my God, there's a better way here. <laughs> and like many of your listeners, I've been to college and I've been taught that we should get the requirements, we should do the design, we should code it, test it. You know. And I've been feeling guilty for five or six years after graduation because we weren't doing this. And I get on this project and we're doing it. And so I say I'm, I'm working six days a week. But half of those days, I'm doing damn documentation. Mm -hmm. We've got documentation coming out of our ears, and it isn't saving us. It's making us worse. And I read this book, and for the first time, I think, oh, my God, it's it's okay to, to, to break away from what I was talking college. And the next place I went to work, I put some of these ideas into action. We just said there will be a monthly release, and we will just flex what goes in, but every month we'll have a release. We said we'll put a whiteboard above our desks. We'll write on there what we're doing. And if people want to reprioritize it, we'll reprioritize it on the whiteboard. And if we haven't done it yet, then they can change the priorities. You know, and things you'd recognize as agile now, we just started doing. Um, and then sometime about 2000, 2001, I was working out in California. I got into a company which was in a bad way. And we start to do some of these things again. And it, it like just worked. And about that time, the whole agile thing started to break. You know, we suddenly had the agile word and the manifesto. And it's like, this stuff just fits. Yeah. And the, so here's the weird thing. Um, and some your engineering listeners are going to hate me for saying this. About this time, as an engineer, I thought, well, I'm starting to do management stuff. I need to work out how I do this properly. So when I came back to the UK, I went and got myself an MBA. <laughs> and uh, the stuff on the MBA, I didn't learn about how to structure debt or lay people off. I learned a load of good stuff, and it all fitted in with what was emerging as Agile about valuing your people, about giving your people authority, about allowing them to be harness their creativity, innovation, and all that stuff. And the Agile ideas which were emerging and these modern management ideas I was learning about, they just fitted. And so um, most of the time since I, I, I got my master's, I've been kind of working in this kind of space, which people call agile, but frankly, I don't care what you call it. It's really about applying modern thinking, modern, modern management practice, um, lean processes, et cetera, et cetera. And just, you know, looking at this thing with the knowledge we have now in 2017, yeah, it, it, it almost seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost seems as if you can approach Agile in, in a couple of different ways. One is you can study it and learn it and implement it, textbook. And the other is you can be a real human being at a real company that's overloaded and you finally just say, screw it. What would actually work? Yeah, yeah. And I always remember when we talk about Agile that um, Agile came out of that. It came out of people like Kent Beck, Jim Copeland and Jess Sutherland, etc., saying, what does work? Let's capture this. Let's write this up. Let's give it a name. Because the other approach, which, which had been kind of the, the blue sky approach, you know, the logical approach wasn't wasn't working, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so there's all sorts of routes you, you can take into Agile. But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, so, so I'm, I'm really into patterns, not patterns, patterns. And the pattern community, the idea of a pattern is what has been seen to work. So most of your readers have got the, the Gang of Four, John Velocity's book. Um, the, these are about capturing what works. These are more than just software architecture. Patterns say, 
what have we seen that has worked before and has worked two or three times before? Let's capture that knowledge and let's share that knowledge. Let's not necessarily have original thought, but let's capture what does work. And that, for me, is the essence of Agile. What have we seen work? What experiments can we have? Let's build on what we see working. And if something doesn't work, let's change tack. And, and so I, I love that. And I, I float mostly on the business side of things. I'm not a developer. I'm, you know, I'm, I talk on the show about doing it as a hobbyist, but we have a developer co-host. That, that's not my world. So when I keep hearing business people say, you know, we hear about this thing called Agile. We're hearing about Agile. We're hearing over and over about all these terms. What should I sort of give them as an elevator pitch when they come to me and they say, all right, you, you kind of float in both circles. What is Agile? What is Agile? Um, so, agile, it, it, put in business terms, there's two ideas business people will have heard of. One is Toyota, lean manufacturing, mm-hmm. and agile builds on a lot of that. Um, and that's about improving your quality, getting rapid throughput. Um, super high uh, quality, super quality high control, quality, yeah. Quality control, measuring what you're doing. The other thing agile builds on and, and your business leaders should be familiar with this as well, are the ideas of Peter Senge and organizational learning. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea as individuals, as teams, as organizations, as corporations, we are learning. And we are. if we can enhance that learning, if we can learn faster, then we can do better. And what we're saying is that in today's world, most of our businesses evolve around technology. So we need to learn about the technology. How do you use um, Ruby? How do you use WordPress? How do you use whatever tools you're using? We need to learn about them. We need to learn about the problems we are solving, um, You know, whether it be selling cars online or providing medical assistance online, the, the problems we're solving online. And we also need to learn about our processes, how we're working as a team, as an organization, and how we can improve. So we've got these three domains where we're constantly learning. And the computer's a very hard taskmaster. The computer only knows about ones or zeros, and it pulls you up sharp. You, you, you need that human brain to, to explain to the computer what you're trying to do. And it's a constant learning mission. So we're constantly learning. So Agile is about accelerating that learning. Now, the follow-up question I know that I would get from these people, we're talking, you know, managers, executive leadership team, is, okay, so why do I keep hearing things like Agile and Scrum and Kanban and XP? And you write about one, which is a hybrid between those last two called uh, Zanpan, I believe you call it. Zanpan's by um, XP Kanban hybrid. Are these different uh, flavors of colas like Coke, Pepsi, or or is it something else? You got it in one. That's that's what it is, is basically Agile is cola. Uh, and we've we've got we've got the, the best known the best selling cola which is Coca Cola in our world it's Scrum okay. Scrum Cola you know um, that said you know um, there's there's a, a a program a special version of this there's the you know the old cult cola with extra caffeine programmers <laughs> in in our world that's extreme programming okay and then uh, you've you've got the if you take the uh, the Agile challenge you know. Eight out of ten people will tell you they prefer Kanban. Kanban is the, the Pepsi of this world, you know. Um, <laughs> and then you've got all these other little minor brands floating around. And, and my entry in here is Zanpan. So, so think of this as shop-bought cola. You know, you go down to your local 7-Eleven and there's their own brand. Yeah. Um, my, my take on it is um, every team needs to develop their own cola. Every team needs to roll their own process. Because every team is a bit different and every team needs to look at these different recipes and say, you know, what's going to work in our environment? And as you keep changing, as you keep learning, as you keep developing, you need to be looking at these things again and moving forward because we're not static. So I sometimes say the only thing you can do wrong in Agile is to do things as you did them three months ago. Mm. You should always be looking for opportunities to try and do things different, hopefully better. You know, we'll try and do things for the better. Some of those things will work and some of those things won't work. And if they don't work, then you put them back where they were and you find a new way of building on this. When I think about describing this to business people, 
and bringing up in the fact, uh, bringing up the previous fact we talked about that you're sometimes known as Agile Allen. What do business people um, who really are on the operations side or the management side, how do they interface with you? Do they know you as Agile Allen or do they know you as um, sort of that, you know, I don't know what he does, but he does something for our tech team. Do they know you as that? <laughs> um, uh, a bit of both, really. So, so business people are starting to to understand a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. So, I think uh, it's kind of interesting. Agile gets everywhere these days. Traditionally, it, it started in the tech department, mm-hmm. and the tech department start doing this, and it spreads out. You know, and just you, you know, agile people want to product owner they want to know what we're building you know the the business needs to interface to them differently so traditionally agile starts in the tech department and then moved out what's kind of changed in the last few years is agile's kind starting maybe not elsewhere in the business um although you know i do again and again i keep coming across uh, marketing people who've cottoned onto agile and agile does seem to be taking root in marketing departments only last week i was was chatting with someone who's doing agile pr Mm. um but yeah little bits of agile appear all over the business but but more generally um agile is now perceived as good and agile is kind of starting to be the, the more senior management executive teams in the organization are starting to evangelize agile and and they're kind of trying to push it not let's push it down but enthuse the business they, they want their businesses to be agile and in some ways agile's come full circle because um when um ken swaber and jeff sutherland and uh other people coined the term agile to describe this style of working um they were actually drawing on some business books which talked about the agile enterprise and the agile manufacturing which had, which appeared in the mid 90s mm-hmm. but hadn't really taken off and they took this word agile to mean the adaptive organization the adaptive technology organization now agile has, has really become um, the flavor of most IT departments or technology departments and now business people have noticed this and now they want their businesses to take on some of these agile aspects so it's almost Business is stealing the word agile from technology. You stole it from business. <laughs> yeah. We've gone full circle. Full circle. Here. And I'm almost surprised that on the business side, more um, project management folks haven't picked this up. Uh, it seems like it's something that could be deployed. Um, you know, when you have a project management uh, team, yeah. it seems like it could be deployed in all situations that they scratch their head and go, you know, everything we have is too formal, it's too rigid, it's too. Whatever I think, you know, a constantly learning and constantly evaluating the results of that learning and implementation yeah, yeah. seems like everybody could do that. Yeah, yes, I, th- I think you're right. Um, the problem, the, the way I say it, is that um, traditional project management has has bought into a concept that you can know what you're doing up front. You can know the problem you're solving. The old waterfall can, method in technology. Yeah, yes. Um, and actually, the waterfall method, actually, um, it has roots well before it. If, if you trace it back, you can go all the way back to Robert McNamara at the Pentagon. And hmm. he brought in this, this, uh, this system called PPBS, Portfolio <laughs> Planning and Budgeting System, into the Pentagon. And that he, sounds he said, about right for them. Yeah, he said to the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, you know, guys, stop building weapon systems. Let's think about the war you're going to fight. Mm-hmm. What weapon systems do you need here? And um, they portfolio project planned out everything they needed in McNamara's uh, Pentagon, um, you know, and it was a great success in that way. Unfortunately, uh, the U.S. found itself fighting in the paddy fields of Vietnam and not on the plains of Germany. So... Um, PPPS caused the U.S. to prepare for the wrong war, um, but the, these these ideas of we we can know in advance became common currency around that time, and waterfall epitomised it. And you also had about 1968 the Project Management Institute was founded, so you, you had these ideas in the 60s that we could 
we could foresee the future, we could understand our problems and we could plan for them, which may or may not have been true in the 60s. But certainly in 2017, what we're finding is that um, the problems we are tackling, the things we're trying to do with technology are things we couldn't even imagine five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. I mean, five years ago, did you know you need, needed a 140-character messaging system in your pocket that could broadcast a message to everyone in the world? Right. You would have said, absolutely, no, we don't need that, but here it is. It, here it is, and you've got it in your pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, you, you just look at your mobile phone, your cell phone, and look at the things that phone can do. You know, I'm looking at mine now. I've, I've got The Economist magazine. I've got weather. I've got email. I've got a camera on there. You know, I've, I've, I've got a, a, a compass. I can call a taxi with it. You know, did you know you needed these things <laughs> in your hand? No, you know, and in fact, I remember thinking about a lot of them for the first time around 94, 95 when Bill Gates wrote The Road Ahead. Oh, yeah. And he talked about this type of stuff of on your television and on this little device you'll carry around. You know, he didn't know it would be a phone, but talking about you'd get weather and you'd get local news. And it's kind of like, yeah, right. God won't see that in my lifetime. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, the things we're doing now, we couldn't imagine them a few years ago. And so we're trying to create technology. We're trying to create businesses, actually, because mm-hmm. increasingly businesses are technology and technology is the business. We are, if you want to be a growth business, you want to get into a technology angle and you want to try and solve a problem in a better way or you want to come up with a solution to a problem nobody realized they had. And that means you, 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 it's not just thinking outside of the box. There isn't a box here. So we try to apply traditional project management techniques to this. And they're all predicated on the idea that we know what we're going to solve. Well, you don't. This is about innovation. Project management has ideas like um, it's a temporary organization. A project team is a temporary organization. Well, you know, I've got two taxi apps on my phone. There's Uber, who we all kind of hate, but my God, it's a brilliant product. I've got a couple of London taxi firms on here. And compared to Uber, the apps are last century. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And those guys have treated it as a project. They've paid someone to build them an app. And yeah, I can order a taxi, but it hasn't updated for a while. Yeah. If you if you can if you're gonna make the most out of this techn- technology, you've got to be constantly improving. You've constantly got to be expanding. You look at Uber; they've moved into Uber Eats. You know, you constantly got to be stretching it. If you treat this as as a project that will one day be done, then you, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. Our businesses are technology. Our businesses are about the technology we use. And the technology is always moving forward. If you went into your local, uh, I don't know, Walmart and the shelves were empty and the manager comes up and says, good news, we sold everything. <laughs> you go, what? He says, yeah, yeah we, we finished the project that, that, that is um, Miami Walmart. We sold everything. Right. You know, but in business, being finished is uh, a bad place to be. I think it's. Yeah. A, I think it's a dream that we chase that is just not realistic, and we're constantly focused on the project. And I, I want to follow up on two things very quickly uh, before we move on on that topic. Yeah. I love the um, story you gave about the uh, the Pentagon because it's kind of funny how that thinking led to some of our problems today. But then in business, currently, uh, I'm getting some exposure with companies and and my own university. We're following VUCA, which comes out of the military, which is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And so the the military idea that we're currently pulling uh, from the U.S. military is the complete opposite of all of that. And then the second point to follow up is you were talking about, um, you know, a a business today that's going for growth, a growth company. And you say this in your um, book, you're also an author, Uh, the Mm -hmm. book you're working on. And I want to give some, uh, I want to, I want to kind of plug it here for you. You publish a couple of things through lean pub, which I'd like to talk about some of those in a moment, but in one of those called continuous digital, you say that every growth company is a software company. And I almost want to ask, do you think they're truly a software company or is it that they're really a data company? Because with software, that's an expense that leads to a hopefully positive ROI. 
Now, with data, that's a productized commodity. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I I th- I think yeah, I think you you're probably onto something there. I think perhaps the next the next turn is going to be data. Uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons I say every company is a software company is that if you want the, the way the way businesses today need to operate, especially if you want to be a growth business, it rests on technology. Mm-hmm, and the role models for companies today need to be Microsoft, Adobe. They need to be the software enterprises of yesterday because those are the companies that have been living in a digital age for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. Mm-hmm. Mo- most businesses today, they, you know, they, they don't have um, the, the, uh, the stories, the culture, the approaches, which are really what you want in a digital age. They're digital teenagers. They're not, they're not yeah. mature yet. Good way of putting it, yeah. They're digital teenagers. They want everything and haven't faced up the fact they need to pay for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas um, I'm not saying all software companies are perfect, but, you know, the, the, the Microsofts and Adobe's this world, they should be a role models. Now, I think um, you're quite right. Data is coming up and software manipulates data. You need the software to do the data. But um, I'm, I struggle to think of which companies are really – Data. It's not. It's not just you know the kind of data companies we've had in the past. Advertising agencies springs to mind. Viewing figures and all that. It's it's, it's the the uh, we've got so much data. We've got both embedded sensors and things. We're getting so much data coming in from our sensors, and we're getting you know large quantities of this stuff. You know if um, what is it a um, if they fly triple seven from Chicago to London. There's something like 10 gigabytes of data generated. Wow. Yeah, they, they, they capture it all. They don't really know what to do with it yet. <laughs> they don't know what it's going to tell them. So, you know, this this data thing, you, you know, I think you may well be onto something there. You know, in the future, companies may all be data companies. But right now, it's difficult to see raw models for the data companies. Most companies are actually in danger of drowning in too much data. There's Yeah, there's an argument to be made for that. Um, the data deluge, what, what, isn't that the term we used for it about 10 years ago or so? And this idea of it, it's coming, you better be ready for it. But it doesn't seem like too many companies. I mean, I, I'm watching what Microsoft is doing and I'm impressed. Um, uh, some of their cloud offerings and, and what Google's doing with um, uh, their equivalent to Microsoft's cognitive services. I, I'm, I'm impressed, but I, I think you're absolutely right. And some of those companies, even Fortune 100 here in the U.S., we, we may be looking at companies that are – not even digital teenagers, but they're digital infants. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think some of these companies don't really um, know know what's about to hit them. And the people who are managing them, the more senior the people, um, the less likely they are to actually um, – how can I put this without being rude? <laughs> the, the people who are more, more senior people in them – other people in many ways are furthest from seeing the possibilities, right. partly because they're away from the um, the code phase where the action is happening. And also, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pushing 50 myself, so I need to be careful what I say here. Um, <laughs> some people just, you know, they just, they haven't lived this world. They don't, haven't experienced it. Yeah. And the people, you know, your listeners, your, your students, Chase, mm-hmm. you know, who are, who are living this stuff, they often have much better insights into what the data and the opportunities technology can provide is. It's like um, I was recently with a client in Australia and they do some amazing surveying stuff. Um, these, these guys are um, – these guys were involved in the search for the Malaysian airliner. They, fantastic stuff they got. And I was talking to some of their people about the, the surveys they've taken around Australia and, and here in the UK and you know, some of the possibilities about – what you could do with this data imagine google maps with 10 times the resolution um it the 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 opportunities are absolutely immense and i wonder you know how many people put in a position where they had that resource in their company would actually be able to conceive of all the possibilities Mm -hmm. um they're they're just kind of bursting out and i I think that, that was pretty advanced stuff but in all sorts of ways, that that happens in all companies today. They're just hoovering up data. 
Well, with the stuff that that we're talking about that's going to be hitting companies in the face, so to speak, what is your personal pet peeve, I guess, in, based on your professional background that you look at companies and you say, how is it that I, you know, I and all of my colleagues can see this so clearly, this is coming or this is here. What is it that businesses are constantly missing right now? Um that's a, that, that's, that's a really good I can tell you some things that they, they're regularly missing. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like there's something bigger, but I'll say one thing is is this adherence to the idea that things will be finished. You know, wow. I, I, I tend to, I mean, I, just for shorthand, I'll say, you know, the project model, the idea that we can define what we're going to do and we can deliver it and we can, we can uh, evaluate the ROI on it and perhaps even do that in advance we're in a world where th- things are changing quite rapidly. Technology is moving forward, and we we've in in, in software we've moved from um, this idea that you test after the event to you test before the event. You write a test, you do something, and then a test validates whether you've got it right or not. Um, in some ways, we need we need to flip our management processes in the opposite direction. So some of the management processes where we were saying tell me the problem you're going to solve, tell me what the ROI on this is. If it sounds good, I'll let you build it. We, we need to flip that in the opposite direction. We need to start saying the time it would take to work out what the problem is, the time it would take to calculate the ROI, the time it would take to do due diligence. You know what? That means we get a product into the market later. Right. That also means to, to do sufficient research to really answer those questions we'd more or less have to build it anyway. So rather than trying to answer those <laughs> That's questions... A, that is a truth you can't avoid, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, what we want to start saying is, let's take um, like a venture capital approach. Let's say we have a suspicion there's something here. Let's throw some money at it. Let's throw some money we can afford to lose at it. We will develop some technology and we'll attempt to understand the problem in tandem. We will put our governance procedures, our management procedures, after the event. We will let some really smart people, techies and more business-focused, customer-focused people, have a crack at this. We'll let them have a crack for three, four months, and then we'll evaluate what they've done. Because in looking at the technology, in trying to craft a solution, they will understand the solution. They will understand the problem. They'll understand what the technology is capable of. We'll let them have a crack at this, and then we'll evaluate whether it's worth pursuing. And in venture capital style, we will either put more money into it and grow the initiative, or we'll say, ah, good idea, we need to write it off. Um, So it's this rethinking our management processes and how we conceive of technology work. I mean, going back to what we were saying before, um, a lot of our management models particularly around technology, come from the 60s, the early 70s. And let me just remind your readers, because um, I was only in um, diapers at this time, but I remind your, your listeners who um, I, either like me were in diapers or, or perhaps um, their memories are fuzzy. In 1970, the state of the art was an IBM 360 mainframe mm-hmm. uh, model 195. If I recall rightly, it had four meg it had four MIPS of processing power. It had ten megabytes of RAM. You programmed it in COBOL through a green screen or a teletype on um in COBOL on uh, an old OS three sixty operate oh, I could go on. You get the idea? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I- I- there's about five internet nodes. Um by the way that they, they they cost uh two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month to rent. That's about one and a quarter million dollars a month in today's money. Um, my kids have got a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Um, in the US, they sell for about thirty-five dollars. Mm-hmm. It's got one gigabyte. That's one thousand <laughs> megabytes of memory. It's got four thousand seven hundred and forty-four MIPS of processing power. It runs the open-source free Linux system, and the languages we use to program it are amazing. They leave COBOL in the dust. That, that's what I love about it. These things, $35, and I you know, I look at some of the technology expenditure that I and businesses and individuals do, and I kinda, <laughs> I'm kind of left scratching my head sometimes of why this yeah. hasn't been commoditized. Yeah, yeah, right. So let's think about this. 
our, our hardware has changed massively. CPU cycles are dead cheap. Our languages, the way we program these things has changed. Our processes have changed from waterfall to agile. Everything about the way we create technology has changed. So why would we expect a project management model rooted in the late 60s to still be an accurate guide for management? It, it just doesn't fit. Yeah. Now, I love Peter Drucker, and I've got his books on my shelves, and a lot of what he says in there is, is gold dust. But there's also stuff in there which is just purely dated. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, not only do we update our technology, remember Moore's Laws, doubling process yeah. every two years? Not only is our, our, our technology racing forward, but the tools we use with it are racing forward, and we need to update our management models. And, you know, most managers let, – let me let – me, Go on, let me hear. Let me suggest most people who have the title manager have learned how to be a manager by watching a guy who had a job before them. Right, right. No, yeah. no science. No, no, nothing behind it. Just observation and and mimicry. Yes, and we we can argue about whether MBAs are the best education for management or not. I don't care. If if you're a manager, you need to think about. How do I learn about management? How do I update my management skills? Because the things I'm managing are racing ahead. And see, this is what I love. You're a business-minded business person with and having had a technological profession. So, and I mean, I, I want to do another plug here for you because I'm, I've, I've kind of been looking at your book, Continuous Digital, yeah. which you have at LeanPub. Everybody should go get yeah. it, leanpub.com slash cdigital. Um, I, and I, I want to come back and ask why you're using LeanPub in a minute. But before that, I want to say that when I was skimming through it, uh, some of the text I was looking at the the sample text, and I absolutely love your work on talking about what the definition of a project is, and it's been eye opening to me. So you you talk about what a, a project is to management and what a project is to technology, and frankly, the reason it was so eye opening to me is I looked at and understood for the first time what technologists see in terms of project. And I've always viewed that as just a bastardization of the word that comes from, you know, accidentally confusing the output with the process. And it just, it, it changed my world knowing that divide between management and tech. Uh, well, well, thank you for saying that. You know, it, I, I went through a similar revelation a few years ago. I, I was doing this presentation. It, it then went under the hashtag no projects. You know, the ideas have moved forward. But I, I did a presentation talking about the definition of a project. And um, afterwards, this programmer came up to me and he said, he said, I've never seen that definition before. I never knew that was what a project was. And <laughs> suddenly... Every conversation I had as a programmer with a project manager flashed before my eyes. Yeah, exactly. And I suddenly realized that all these conversations, we, we had been poles apart. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, to a programmer, a project is, may just be a collection of source code files or it's some work endeavor. But to a project manager, a project is something that, that has a formal definition. It has structures around it. it has, and I think... Some people, and I think there's a valid point here, would say some of my work in this field is just playing with semantics. And I absolutely agree. But the problem is, if we are using the same word to mean different things, then we're not actually having the same conversation. Well, and I, I think it goes deeper than that because – and this this will be uh, a little bit weird, but I think you're right on the semantics issue. We have words and they mean certain things for a reason. And, you know, you and I can even joke about the difference between real English and American English. But we still – we still if we're, if we're a five-year-old and we don't, you know, know how to code yet, we don't know anything else about any of the stuff we're talking about, we still know that a project is a process or a thing you endeavor upon or right, – a, 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 something you're going through it's a it's a step by step it's not a collection of files and i think that's where i'm saying that yeah. i i see and i see this um lack of critical thinking in a lot of students these days not to throw anyone under the bus but what happened was some software developer not throwing stones said hey we're working on a project so all the files all of the stuff that's going to go into this and create the output we'll call that the project button in this in this um, IDK or or something else or or in this um, mm-hmm. excuse yeah. me the IDE so we'll call it project assuming that everyone would know you're using this because you're working on a project and then it became its own thing it became its own box 
Yes. To me, that yes. that's that's a massive divide that just between, you know, management and technology and operations has to be mm-hmm. rectified. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, ex- ex- oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't add anything to that, Chase. <laughs> I, wonder if, I wonder if I hit a sore spot for you. It seems like something you're very passionate about. As I say, you know, I, I, I now look back on my earlier career and I just think of all those occasions when um, I was talking to a project manager and how we were talking about different things. And I, the, re- the reason why I do a lot of this stuff is, is when I look at programmers today, some of whom are younger than me, some of them I, I've known for years and as old as me, you know, I'm still a programmer at heart. And I, a lot of what I'm doing is about trying to say, you know, we need to make this work. We need to make work better for these guys and you know i'm trying i I really want to help these guys but in order to help them i've had to take this journey over to the business side the management side welcome to the dark side welcome to the dark side (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting you say like chase because um you know i um i remember um shortly after i um graduated with my mba and i did some interviews i was interviewing for some jobs and i suddenly realized that when I had was faced with um, a programmer, because I was interviewing a software company, so, and they, they realized I had an MBA, they looked at me really suspicious. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really trust me because I, I had a management qualification. And when I went and met with managers, they kind of looked at me suspiciously because they knew I had code under the fingernails. <laughs> and uh, you, you move forward um, about um, nigh on 10 years. And one of my earlier books is called business patterns for software developers, which which in many ways is an awful title because I meant developers, meaning the organizations that create software and everyone else interprets it as programmers. Right. Um, and um, this, this is this is published with, uh, with Wiley, a formal publisher, and we went through a formal publishing process. And when we first submitted the draft, we submitted a proposal, um, the review board rejected it. And my, my editor went and talked to her opposite number in business. And she said, you know, we've, we've got this problem with this book. Alan's proposed this great book. Um, and it's been rejected. And she said, um, yeah, we have the same problem. Whenever the business side try and publish a technical book, it goes into a black hole. And whenever the technologists try and publish a business book, it goes into a black hole. Um, and people buy books. People go to conferences. People read blogs about the thing they identify with in their own silos. And so business people didn't buy books that looked a bit technical and technical people didn't buy books that looked a bit business. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see this pattern played out again and again and again. And unfortunately, you know, it's this middle ground, this realization that the, the two things are different sides of the same coin, which I think is really important now. But we... Our identities, our history, whatever. We we keep trying to separate these two things. Well, you're you're preaching the history and the purpose of this show, and there are um, still folks, some of who, some of them who listen to us, some don't, that will look at us and say, "I don't exactly understand why you exist." And you know, when you when you put a couple years into a side project like we have with the podcast, it it can sting a little bit. But the reality is, we agree with what you just said so much that we don't see a difference. Uh, we okay. So we see operational differences, but going forward into the future, there's no real difference between a company um, hiring for technical expertise or hiring for managerial expertise. You really need both skill sets, even if you're not managing programmers, even if you're not leading a team at all. Those two yeah, skill sets yeah. to us, and and it sounds like to you as well, are one and the same. Yeah, there was a great piece I read about Christmas time. I think it was. Um Sloan Management Review, Tim O'Reilly was writing in there, and he said, the programmers today are the managers. The computers do the work. So you go to Google or Yahoo or whatever, and the programmers are instructing the workers in how to do the work of Google, in how to do searches, in how to do the work of Yahoo advertising. You know, It's just the workers are computers so when the managers instruct the computers they're using a special language yeah um and which which really rings a bell with me and it shows that you know people who understand that language the language of programming need to understand the business the business issues now 
It's interesting. I mentioned Peter Drucker before. There's there's a great thing he said in one of his essays in. I think it was the 60s, early 70s, when he was talking about knowledge workers in one of his early essays. And he said, um, knowledge workers see themselves as part of the management class because they sit in offices and they, they're clean. And he probably would add today, use keyboards and computers. But to a lot of managers, knowledge workers appear like the factory workers of yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's just they are working with their brains instead of their hands. They are still the, the production line, if you like it. And and Peter Drucker talked in that essay, I can't remember which essay it was, about the potential tension here because the self-image of knowledge workers was of managers and the image of managers of knowledge workers was of production line people. And I think a lot of what we're going through is that. That rings so true. And, and you know, one of my personal interests is – uh, futurism, and because of that, I like to study the past. I'm not a historian by any any sense, but if you look at economic history, the whole call of you know whether capitalism is a good or a bad thing really centered around this idea of wait a second, I'm a productive worker, I make something for you, and I have no right to it, nor for to the the profits from it. And we've, you know, economically solved that problem really or or ignored it, I guess, successfully 150 years. And now we have um, knowledge workers, as you're saying, and the idea of when somebody sits down and says, all right, we need you to sign an NDA and we need to sign you a a non-compete. And by the way, anything you invent while you're here, whether it's for work or not, is ours. And people look at that and go, "Uh, absolutely not. It's almost that same argument all over again. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I think potentially we we do have some big questions to answer about our economic system, you know, because I think you know all your listeners will be aware. In the last few years, we've had we've had an an increase in um, in disparity where we've got you know some really really super rich people at the top, you know, the Bill Gates and Larry Page of this world, and we've got you know people at the bottom who really aren't doing anywhere near as well as they did. We, what is in the U.S. Um, mid um, middle class incomes have stagnate, stagnated for the last twenty years or something? Mm. It's, it's awful. Um, and the problem is the technologies we have are allowing those with capital to gather more money to extract more money from our production systems. Um, you know, you look at companies that are making massive profits, and they're paying their workers very little. They're paying a minimum wage. Um, you know, there's, there's something wrong here. And as our technology advances, is it right that this goes on? And it seems, technology seems to be exaggerating this divide. Um, you know, I also now I look at, you know, if you read almost any science fiction author, you know, I, I like um, Ian M. Banks and, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Ken McLeod. You know, if you read about a science fiction future, there's never any money. Right. We have wonderful machines and we have life expectancy of hundreds of years and whatnot, and we don't have money. Um, you know, oh, but we still have very rich people either. It's much more egalitarian. Um, what's going on in our world where I think those science fiction rights are right? You know, technology potentially gives us the power to have a very egalitarian world without money. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, you know, a, communism without shortages perhaps we should call it uh, although communism is a failed system let's not forget that we, we've got to work out how we can get a, a system that gets the advantages of capitalism with that with and uses technology to not um impoverish people and we, we've got some big challenges here we've hardly started to scratch the surface i think you know i think that's the big one challenge just like how physicists have the grand unified theory that they're looking for i think economists have that how can we get this blend of of capitalism and socialism and how can we make it you know something that's viable for people rather than becomes you know quite cantankerous <laughs> across different yeah. groups but now one of the things uh, related to this topic though one of the things i heard you say on another podcast you were um, a guest speaker on you said everyone is a learner and we learn better together. And I almost, um, I think about that and I see it as almost the opposite of what we were just talking about. Of In, in a lot of sci-fi things go dystopian and, and the rich get richer and then somehow we magically solve this. But this almost seems like a key to how we can in the real world outside of science fiction 
um, cure this issue. So if everybody's a learner and we learn better together, mm. do you think that technology and the, the current business trends, is this enough to start turning the tide of this current And for lack of a better phrase, the current screw you defiance that the UK and the US are exhibiting. I mean, will we get to a point where we eventually worldwide act on common economic principles instead of conflict? Ooh, I'm not trying to take it too political. It's it's more of an economic question. That's a $64 billion question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think perhaps what we don't have at the moment is is what economists sometimes call um, creative destruction. Uh, we, we have a situation where we've actually created a new generation of monopolists. And uh, some of your readers might find this confrontational, but, you know, Google. Mm-hmm. Google's got, what, 80% of the search market. Um, you know, Microsoft still dominate the desktop, but, you know, we're just giving up on it. But um, uh, who else have we got? Amazon. You know, it's, I've, it's really difficult to avoid Amazon. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm fighting. Uh, the day we're recording is their prime day in the U.S. where they do this massive sale like uh, like uh, Alibaba and the others do for Singles Day in China. And I'm resisting right now giving them money that they otherwise would have never gotten from me just on an artificial sale. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I've gone through phases where I've tried to resist buying from Amazon. I've gone to other stores, but at the end of the day, they're just so much better than other, other other's providers. And, you know, their, their e-books, Kindle solution is just so smooth. Mm-hmm. And this, this creates a, a problem because, you know, we have these monopolists um, and actually we're benefiting as individuals. We're better off from the monopolists on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, what price are we paying? And, and some people would say, you know, we're paying with our data. We, we are the product. Um, so I think one of the problems we have is that we don't actually have enough creative destruction. We don't. We have a lot of startups. Perhaps we've got more startups than ever, but it's getting more and more difficult for them to get into the market. And some of these startups, I mean, Facebook and Google, are classic examples. If they see a startup who's a threat, they buy them. I mean, let's let's face it. That's why Facebook bought WhatsApp. WhatsApp was building another social mm-hmm. network. Um, so Facebook just took them out. Well, I think one of the big reasons that that's so scary is it reminds me of the automotive industry, uh, especially through the 1970s of, well, gasoline prices and inflation and everything's going crazy in the world. And then these companies decide to say, well, we're going to buy everything that's hydrogen and electric, electric and we're going to sequester it. And then we end up with a problem where the problem we're in today, where we're still having to slowly take these modern monopolists and move back towards electric. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Another one is the banking sector. You know, we we had a banking crisis 10 years ago. And, you know, in the capitalist world, the capitalist way of dealing with this is to let some of these these institutions go out of business. And through Darwinian natural selection, some superior businesses will emerge. But we've allowed our financial institutions to become so large, so, so enveloping that we can't let them, we can't afford to let them go right. out of business and right. um, so actually what, what you're touching on here is, is another one of my um my, my favorite topics and that is um economies of scale Absolutely. The, these these institutions all exhibit economies of scale and and that there is a logic to having large banks there is a logic to having large google um and your 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 listeners are used to the idea that if they go out to buy milk then buying you know, a large carton of milk will be cheaper per pint, per fluid ounce, than buying the same quantity of milk in several di- several smaller containers. That's true of milk. It's true of retail banking. It's true of some other things. We, we, we do need to impose some limits on that at, a, at a, a macro level. But bringing it back to technology, a lot of technology does not exhibit economies of scale particularly software development if you are creating software development if you're creating software in all sorts of ways when you try and go bigger it gets more expensive so um, many listeners will know that larger software teams typically aren't as productive as small software teams a team of four or five will often be more productive per person than a team of 15 and may well be more productive overall than a team of 25 or something because you you lose the productivity. We also see it in um, 
um, releases, hence the move towards continuous delivery and lots of really tiny deliveries. And we, we now have a world in technology where the rules of um, economies of scale don't apply. And bringing us back to one of the things we were saying before is this is a place where a lot of managers need to rethink how, how they're working because a lot of managers who've been in in their business for you know 10 20 years their their success is based on extracting economies of scale and mm. um, but now when it comes to managing technology not only do we not have economies of scale but trying to exploit economies of scale makes things worse that's uh, that is a super i mean just fascinating con i've never thought about it in those terms before but you're absolutely right the there are economies of scale that we get and, and that's why it's so difficult to compete with a facebook or someone like that and what you're saying is, if I'm understanding correctly, is that when you release a technology product, it may not necessarily have the same diminishing returns that a physical product might have had. And But the teams that develop the technology do have diminishing returns, right? The larger you grow the team, yes. you're not necessarily going to get a better or faster output. But then again, the product that does get created, it doesn't have the same type of diminishing returns restrictions. Yes, yes. That is we really if that's if that does continue to play out i think we're going to have to reconsider a lot of governance of how we interface with the the technology companies of the future oh absolutely you know there's this that it's that moment where the product moves from being created into being used once it's being used you know there's massive economies of scale to having more people use it but the creation process is diametrically the opposite and if you try and put economies of scale in that, you get into, in, in, in the creation pro process, you get into some of the problems we talked about with projects. You move away from innovation, you lose productivity. You know, our, our governance processes need to be different on either side of this. Before it goes to market, we, we need a governance process that values innovation, does lots of small stuff, has some successes. Once we get into the, into the big market, once we're pushing a product, then absolutely, you, you're going to govern the rollout of the product and the user base on an economies of scale basis. You've got two very different worlds there. Yeah, and that's that's a difficult one to to, to tackle. I mean, I, I didn't mean to take you so far off the path of, of discussing Agile <laughs> and all of that, but in, in my mind, I, I think it is all very much related, and that's why um, I, I that's why I wanted to have you on the show, and I thank you for coming and, and talking with us today. Um, I almost feel like that if I were to end the conversation now, that we'd be arbitrarily just shutting it off right in the middle of something <laughs> great. But at the same time, I, I almost feel like this is something where it is such, I, I don't know about for you, but for me, it's such a, a, a moment of revelation of not just everything that we're talking about, why agile is important, why proper management in, in tech organizations is important, but also for me personally, what I do in my career, what I do with the show, I'm at such a moment of revelation. I almost feel like I need a breather and then we can come back and maybe talk about this topic a little bit more sometime. Yeah. Well, you know, Chase, we, we've been talking for about an hour, so I'm very, I'm very, I'm very impressed. Anyone who's got all the way through this podcast, uh, um, so I, I think we we need to let people take some time to think about this stuff, and by all means, we we can record another podcast another time and pick up on some of these topics. Absolutely, I know, I know, I need to digest it. That's this is, um, I, I again, uh, I I really do thank you for coming on the show. Um, any last minute kind of plugs or promotions, anything you're working on currently that you'd really like to send people to? I know we mentioned LeanPub. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. we mentioned your site, but where would you really like to steer people now if they want to connect with you a little bit better? Um, you know, um, well, I'm always available as a consultant and a trainer if anybody wants <laughs> any advice. A blatant plug for my services. Hey, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I say I've, I've got, I've got I'm on Twitter. It's Alan Kelly Net. Um, I've got a blog. Just Google Alan Kelly blog. You'll find it. Um, the main thing is, you know, the book, the continuous deliver digital book, um, which because of the wonders of LeanPub, um, you know, it's, it's an electronic book, and it's, you know, the content is really there. I'm working through editing it now, so I, I'd suggest you, you, your listeners go and get ourselves, go and get themselves a. A copy of continuous delivery from lean pub as i'm finishing up they get free updates sometime 
in the next few months it will be finished and it'll be properly edited and then uh, you know maybe in six months there'll be a physical copy but please get a copy of continuous digital and let me know what you think. I'd, I'd love to have comments on it uh, and, and know what people are, how, how they're interpreting it. Um, so, yeah, continuous digital. All right, Alan, thank you for joining me today. Okay, many thanks, Chase. Bye. Hi, everyone. After Alan left, he sent me a message and he did something really, really awesome. I'm going to want you to go over to multinewmedia.com slash podcast slash 78 to get to the episode page and you're going to be looking for a link that gives Alan's book continuous digital to us gives it to us for just five dollars over on lean pub the address is leanpub.com slash c digital slash c slash multinewmedia that's all too complex to remember so just go to multinewmedia.com click on the episode 78 page and I'll give you the link there take care everyone Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.